KYW News Radio Original Podcasts. This is KYW News Radio In Depth. I'm Matt Leon. With the passing of Queen Elizabeth II, there has been a lot of focus as of late on the British monarchy. A lot of focus. We are seeing wall-to-wall coverage at times on the cable news channel. And of course, when there have been royal weddings, they have gotten fawning coverage in the U.S. And when you kind of think about it, isn't it kind of odd? A country, the U.S., founded by fighting a war for independence from the British monarchy, seems to be really enthralled with a lot about the British monarchy. Why is that? To talk about this, we caught up with Dr. Catherine Warwick. She is an associate professor of political science at Villanova University. So to start, you kind of been on display here since the passing of the queen, the the British monarchy and all of the ceremony and all. But I'm kind of curious, how much actual power does the monarchy have? Or is everything, all its role, just purely ceremonial? Well, it's an important role, but it is really these days almost entirely a ceremonial role. So the queen has a constitutional role to play. There are things that she must do. I'm sorry, I guess now the monarch must do in the system, Um, but the monarch doesn't reign, doesn't exercise sort of ruling power. Um, So the the monarch signs off on legislation, appointments of some kinds are made in the monarch's name, but but the monarch doesn't govern and hasn't governed in a very long time. The monarch prior to that, the queen, you know, they have to sign off on things. Did they really, is the option there to say no and, or is it mostly, you know, I know, Every time there's a new prime minister, and that's happened a lot in England, you hear they had they went to the to the queen to for permission to form a government. You know, can they say nope, not today? We're not doing that. That like, or is it just sort of like how our vice president? We all learned about counting electoral votes, despite what people wanted to say that he could do this and that. It was purely you're counting them and then get out. Is a are we kind of in the same thing here with regards to? Uh, what they're when they're being asked permission and stuff like that? Yeah, so governments are formed in the name of the queen or, or the king. Um, but these days, the, the queen or the king can't refuse to do so. And there are rules by which they have to act. So in the past, yeah, the, the queen could have refused or could have chosen her own prime minister. And she did for, you know, for part of history. But that's not the case anymore. It's an important ceremonial thing. And it's done in the name of the crown. But this is not personal power uh, for the monarch. So it's fascinating. So with all that being said, one of the the one of the reasons I wanted to have this conversation was the U.S., as we all know, was a country that got its independence from the crown. We got tired of their system of government, so we created our own. And you would think that that kind of being the founding DNA of the country, we would scoff at all things monarchy and we would scoff at all the the ceremony but it seems to me americans are very taken with the the monarchy you look at the coverage of the queen's passing and obviously a public figure deserves a lot of attention when they pass you know but wall-to-wall cable news coverage i mean social media everybody that people and and companies are everybody has a take and a remembrance and are you as surprised as I am, or, or maybe even not surprised, baffled by how America views the monarchy? Well, like you, I, I find it really interesting, but 
I would say that it's, it's really event driven. So we do see these outpourings like, like we're noticing now, um, but only sometimes, only when a, a, an event occurs. And I think the outpouring of interest and emotion is, is real, but it's not steady over time. So if you poll Americans, um, most Americans have you know, opinions about Queen Elizabeth. She was very favorably viewed. But if you ask Americans how much they care about the royal family, that level is fairly low. Um, so even you know, when um, Prince William got married and there was all this media attention, only about a third of Americans said they were following that closely. It's interesting though, I have to imagine there is a reason why these cable networks are going to wall to wall. And you know they are not doing it out of respect and they are not doing it out of, I think, news. I think they are doing it because of the eyeballs that they're getting. Is it possible that this is the type of thing that people, oh, I'm not really interested in. I only watched it for five hours last night instead of the whole 12. Um, do, do you think there might be some of that, that people publicly scoff, but privately pour a glass of wine and, and watch the, the, the ceremony and the, the parade and everything that goes along with it? Oh yeah, I think absolutely. You know, if, if you poll someone and say, what do you seriously think about this? They'll give you a political opinion. But if you offer someone this kind of spectacle, it's got horses, it's got gilded carriages. I would watch it, right? It's, it's, it's good television in that way, but it, it also feels like something that's not mere entertainment. It really is connected to something historical and, and something that people make connections with in various ways. Do you think the fact that we broke away from it and like, you know, obviously we're talking, you know, more than two centuries, a lot's happened and stuff like that with regards to the U.S. and the U.S. and Britain are very close now. But is it like we're taken with the pageantry, but it doesn't really affect us at all? So we can just kind of enjoy it and not have to worry about any repercussions or any responsibility or anything like that? Yeah, I think that's a really good take on it. I think it's, you know, it's fascinating in various ways. It's it's celebrity watching. It's um, It's got this fairy tale sort of element. Um, it's quaint. So I teach British politics and I find that my university students, when they're interested in British politics, they're interested in the, the things that are, are sort of quaint and traditional about the system, and they're interested in the celebrity components. And eventually, you know, they, they care about the politics, they want to understand it. But the things that are appealing sort of culturally in the United States about Britain are these, these kinds of things that you can, uh, you can consume, you know, as entertainment or connection to the past or a story. And I think that is a, a large part of the appeal. How much do you think, if at all, you know, obviously in a monarchy, in, in the old school monarchy, you had a king or a queen who ruled and their word was what they say. But we've also got in the U.S. right now is kind of this creeping authoritarianism where people, a lot of it is connected to Donald Trump, but a lot of people just want a powerful person in power. And yet, if you were to ask me, people that were fans of, the British monarchy and this group of authoritarian, their Venn diagram circles would not overlap. Um, do you think that's, that's true? Or do you think there is any connection there to the, the longing of people for authoritarianism and enjoyment of a, a monarchy like in like the British monarchy? <laughs> I think these are two really different things. I agree that there is this sort of um, authoritarian tendency that we're seeing more visible in society. But if you ask Americans what they think about monarchy, only about 5% of Americans in polls say that they think monarchy would be good for the United States. 
And overwhelmingly, Americans think it would be a bad thing. So it's not monarchy as authoritarianism. I think it's monarchy as spectacle that appeals to people. Do we not appreciate the damage that the British monarchy did to the globe over the centuries when it comes to, because one of the other stories of this is, you know, we talk about how the U.S. has reacted to this, you know, but a lot of other countries that broke free of the crown, there is a lot of still open gaping wounds there. And uh, it feels like a lot of that gets glossed over in so that we can enjoy the spectacle and we don't have to, you know, really have any of the hard conversations or difficult thoughts about what the you're hard pressed, I think, in Africa and Asia to find uh, some sort of border that they didn't have some sort of say in by no just because that's how they wanted to do it. Right. Right. So the, the history of the British Empire, uh, this really cuts both ways, you know, for for some people and and. Here's probably where I should say, I'm, I'm a dual citizen of the US and the UK. And for my grandmother, the history of empire is, is this sort of glorious history. She's of a particular generation. So for her, the queen was this symbol of, um, of a particular kind of past and of World War II and things like that. She's got a very glossed over kind of take on this. And some people do consume this kind of spectacle in that way. But the other thing that's happening right now that I think is really good is we're getting these conversations that say, wait a minute, let's look at the history of empire. Let's look at what these ceremonies and, and what this role was connected to. And people are really, people are offering that up, you know, as a corrective to the record, which is great. And we're, we're seeing it land with the people who want just the storybook version really badly. And so we're seeing pushback against it, right? And People have published in the last few days, you know, some, some editorials and some articles saying, hey, this was the effect of the empire in living memory, in real people's lives around the world. Let's not glorify all of this unthinkingly. And it's, it's really striking how people don't want to hear that. They want to push back on that because they prefer the narrative with the crowns and the carriages and the heroic service in World War II, that sort of thing. But that other part of the narrative is essential. You can't tell the story of the British monarchy without a full picture of the British empire and the role of the monarchy in that. So I'm really glad to see those out there now. And I'm curious, why do you think we are so, and when I say we, I mean kind of humans, not necessarily, but like you talk about people want to glorify this and kind of push to the side. And I see the same thing specifically in the US, like with slavery, we don't want to acknowledge the lasting to this moment damage that that institution did and has done. Why are we so adverse to talking about things that are real, that were tangible, that happened, but we had nothing to do with? Why is that so hard for so many people? You know, I don't know if I'm that's probably an unfair question to ask you kind of out, but I feel I see a, a connection there to what you just said. Like we just want the this. Don't talk about that. There's this isn't the time, but it's never the time to talk about it. Right. That's what's happening now. You know, you see people um, out in public life in Britain at demonstrations and things, um, holding up signs that are maybe very slightly critical of the monarchy, or holding up just blank paper and being told now's not the time. There have been arrests and charges brought for disturbing the peace because nobody, nobody wants to hear that. It seems so disruptive to people. And I think it's that we don't wanna to have to deal with complexity. 
right? We like simple narratives that can be heartwarming or pretty. And we don't like thinking about how complex the politics of the monarchy have been. You know, Queen Elizabeth herself may have been personally, and I think was personally an, a really admirable woman in a lot of ways, but the monarchy and the power of the British state abroad, that's not something that can be told in a, a simple, happy story. And you're asking people to think critically and to think about you know, who benefited and who bore the costs. That's an uncomfortable conversation and people don't like to be uncomfortable. We need to take a break. We will have more with Dr. Catherine Warwick right after this. This is KYW News Radio In-Depth. A Philadelphia dentist today was sentenced to 22 years in prison and fined $100,000. This was just unbelievable. You gotta understand the genius in Larry. Nobody was doing coke at this point. No one could believe that this highly educated, young, handsome man was this kingpin drug dealer. This is Wolves Among Us, the Larry Lavitt story. A documentary podcast from C13 Originals, a Cadence 13 studio. Listen now on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. And we are back on KYW News Radio in depth, continuing our conversation with Dr. Catherine Warwick, Associate Professor of Political Science at Villanova University. We see all this pomp and circumstance, and we see the lives that the royal family lives. And this is all subsidized by British taxpayers. Like, and they're fine with that. Like, it for a, a, something like that. Yeah, I understand you get the the cool weddings and stuff like that. And but I find it fascinating that there's not resentment for that in Britain. Or is that just kind of show you kind of how marrow deep? it is where it's just kind of accepted as the cost of doing business. Oh, no, it is resented. Oh, is it? Okay. Oh, yeah. This is this is something that that turns up um, in public debate from time to time. How much does the monarchy really cost? And is it really worth it? So you'll see these estimates and they vary really widely um, from 35 million pounds a year to 80 million pounds a year to 300 million pounds a year. And it depends on whether you're counting how much money is transferred to the queen versus how much is spent on you know, security and the upkeep of all the palaces. And so there are a lot of ways of calculating it. So there's this debate about how we ought to count the cost. And then if you, if you try to calculate the benefit, like what does the monarchy bring into Britain? So there's one argument, well, the monarchy is so popular with tourists that you have to take into account how much of the British tourism industry is driven by the royal palaces and the royal events and things. So yeah, part of the segment of the British population who would like to see the monarchy ended, part of their argument is, look how much this costs. It costs about 300 million pounds a year. And this is in conditions of austerity when people can't afford to heat their homes and you know, food bank use is on the rise. And that's getting some attention now too because of, uh, I guess now King Charles has, it sounds odd to say that, King Charles's personal wealth and the wealth that he inherited from the queen. Um, this is a, an astounding amount of money to support a very expensive institution at a time when people are literally going hungry. It's definitely part of the political debate. The queen reigned for seven decades, if I'm not mistaken. So you're talking, you know, she she takes over as queen uh, just a few years after World War Two and over uh, the years, a lot of British colonies break away. Did she have anything to do with that? And when I say anything to do with it, like 
did she fight to hold on? Did she encourage them to leave? Was she indifferent? You know, kind of educate us on kind of the history of uh, of the queen and what role, if any, she had in all these, you know, countries breaking away. Yeah, well, for this, I think um, a historian could could talk about really the details of the record, but the public image of, of the monarchy in these conditions, um, I think most recently we've seen this in the Caribbean, you know, where governments are saying, we don't want to be part of the Commonwealth. We don't want to have the queen as our head of state. Um, that kind of thing where it's been really conflictual, the queen stayed clear of that. So she never went, for example, to a flag lowering ceremony where the, uh, the union flag was taken down. She did, however, visit Ireland and Northern Ireland and in the context of the troubles, because you know, Ireland has a colonial history with the United Kingdom. And in that case, her visit was actually considered politically significant and sort of healing that, you know, she went there as a gesture and she shook hands and, and that was considered helpful in that regard. The, the loss of other colonies outside the region, that's been something that, that they haven't wanted to have sort of foregrounded in terms of the image of the monarch and the presence of the monarch. How much do you think, not that the British monarchy is going to go away, but Queen Elizabeth was just such a almost, you know, you kind of show by this discussion, like this almost magical figure because of her age and she was a very graceful woman. Like, does her passing, do you think we will see less attention? Does it become less interesting at all? Or do you think just, or it will stay the same? I think it's really likely to change. She was um, remarkably personally popular. So her approval ratings were just really, really high, like 70%, 80%, 90% over time. And they stayed really high. At a time when the popularity of the monarch, you know, the, the whole system was a lot lower. So clearly the monarchy has been benefiting from her personal popularity and the esteem in which she was held. It's not true of other members of the royal family. Prince Harry is very pop fairly popular. Prince William is fairly popular, but King Charles is not. He might get a little bit of a bump, you know, uh, in the current circumstances, but he hasn't, he hasn't been a popular figure and the monarchy will no longer benefit from the popularity of his mother. So we see a little bit of an uptick in the polling on um, people who think that the monarchy should come to an end. For a long time, about two thirds of the British population said, yeah, we should, we should keep the monarchy. And that's dropped to just over half. Now that could be just sort of recent circumstances and scandals affecting particular figures. But we know that the, um, the members of the royal family now are not themselves as popular and that there's a rise in support for, um, for bringing the monarchy to a conclusion. I think how that plays out is gonna have a lot to do with Charles's actions in his first couple of years as, as monarch and with circumstances that are probably beyond his control. I'm curious, how would you bring it to an end? How would that work? They just kind of become private citizens and you take away, maybe they still get protection, like, you know, former presidents would get secret service protection and stuff, but, you know, we kind of open the castle to, I, you know, how would it work? How would you unwind it? Well, you know, there are there are models from other European countries that no longer have serving royal families, and, and they could follow one of those models. 
Um, I think that the tougher question is what do you replace the monarch with? Because right now Britain has a head of state that is not the same person as the head of government. So they have this ceremonial person who can be a symbol of unity for the nation. What do you replace the monarch with? Do you replace it with an elected head of state? That's what's done in some countries, but it politicizes an office that hasn't been party political in the past. And that comes with some risks as well. So there's no really obvious preferable alternative here. It's something that would have to be worked out and I think would be quite thorny to work out. That's it for this episode of KYW News Radio In-Depth. You can listen to the podcast free anytime on the Odyssey app, and you can find it wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm Matt Leon, and we'll have another episode out soon. 